Hello and welcome to the Gridiron Show going into week 12 of this NFL season, this unique as anything NFL season. And as always, we're going to be going through the good, the bad and the ugly from this week. Liam Blackburn, editor of Gridiron and Simon Clancy, features editor joining me, Will Gavin. Chaps, how are we? Very well, Willie. Yes, good mate, all good. Liam has a neighbour who apparently appears to be going through some kind of tumultuous time, some kind of breakup or something, because she's been banging out Taylor Swift and uh, all sorts of 80s power ballads and stuff through the walls. So if you get a little bit of a soundtrack to this show, I apologise now. It's been very good. We've had the Matthew Sherry approved Whitney Houston uh, stage of the breakup, so that was good. It's when she starts listening to Meatloaf you want to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> That's when things get real bad. That'll be me, mate. Don't worry about that. I can imagine you listening to Meatloaf. Well, Sherry once put Meatloaf, like an entire album on, while we were driving through Texas one time and knew every single word to every song. It was <laughs> astonishing. Uh, really we should amazing. be banned from this podcast forever. <laughs> right, let's crack into uh, this week in the NFL, the good, the bad and the ugly. And uh, let's start with Sunday Night Football. Pat Mahomes, if you give him a minute and 40 sec- odd seconds, then he's only going to score. But I think the Raiders with an opportunity to um, to sweep them for the first time since, what, 2012, I think it was, did themselves a service even if they didn't get the win. Yeah, you've got to be coming away from this game as a Raiders fan thinking, what more can we do? And also thinking, oh my God, we're playing really well, but we've also got this guy for another 10 years in our division. How on earth are we going to get past them? I mean... Derek has started with his first 10 passes were all completed and all of them went for first downs, 160 yards. He had more first downs for his first 10 passes than a lot of the teams had the entire week. But as you say there, well, you know, I think all of us felt as soon as they gave the ball back to Mahomes with that much time that he was going to walk down the field. And it was just so surgical the way he did it. Um, he went six for seven on that final drive for 75 yards and the touchdown. That was actually the first touchdown pass he's thrown in the final two minutes of a game because normally the Chiefs are, are so far ahead of everyone else. And yeah, it's just incredible. I mean, he's the MVP momentum's kind of gathered steam over the last two weeks, and he's sort of like playing as well as he did in that 2018 campaign. He's only thrown two picks this year. Both of those were because uh, receivers ran the wrong routes, and it just he's he's just playing at a, a different level. And for, for the Raiders, it's just very very unfortunate that he's in their division. You know, there were a lot of stats around about Joe Burrow on weekend, and we'll obviously get onto the situation with the Bengals, but. He's thrown five 300-yard games in his first 10 games, which is puts him top five all time. And there was him on five, there was Rodgers on five, there was someone else on four, and then there was Pat Mahomes on eight out of his first 10 games. He threw for at least 300 yards. And you're going, oh, well, yeah, but if you're, you know, you're in a bad team, you're throwing because you're from behind, which a few of those guys were on that list. No, Pat Mahomes was winning all of those games and throwing for 300 yards every time. It's, the guy's a statistical anomaly. It's ridiculous. I think we've just become sanguine almost to his brilliance <laughs> in a way. I mean, who didn't expect him to drive down the field at the end of the game? I, I can't think there were many people who thought, well, the Chiefs, this is all over for the Chiefs. His talent is phenomenal. And like you say, the fact that he's 24, 25, and he could be around for another 10, 12, 15 years is a scary thought if you follow a team in the AFC. On the flip side, I thought the Raiders played really, really well. They look, I, I always look for teams around about this time of the year who's starting to make runs. We'll talk about another uh, in Indianapolis in a bit, but the Raiders look like a team that if they can just generate a little bit more pass rush, if they can get Max Crosby some help, Cleveland Farrell comes back, they sign McKinley and Beasley, which could work, it might not work, and get Damon Arnett playing on the other side to, to Trayvon Mullen and playing at, at a decent level. I think they've got a real shot because they can run the ball. They've got a meaty offensive line. And Derek Carr, 
to his credit, is playing at an MVP level. Well, let's, I mean, let's move on and talk about the Colts because I think there's, there's plenty positive to say about that AFC West team. The Colts-Packers game proved to be an absolute barnstormer in the end. And, you know, it was very much a case of, of the defence stepping up for large swathes. Are we convinced that this Colts team are a, a proper contender in an AFC that's got the Chiefs that's got an undefeated Steelers team that's got so many teams on three losses at the moment as well? I thought it was a really good game between two flawed teams in a flawed season. I don't think even Pittsburgh's unbeaten season, I don't think they're without their issues. And like I just said, you're looking for a team that's starting to get hot. The Colts feel that way. They've got a really strong defence. Again, Jonathan Taylor, in terms of running the ball behind that meaty offensive line, he's starting to pick up yards that he wasn't earlier in the season. And if they can limit the mistakes, and that sounds awful about a, you know, a sort of a whole of very good quarterback in, in Philip Rivers, but if they can limit his mistakes with sort of bonehead interceptions, I think they could really make damage. Uh, and, you know, you're just seeing Michael Pittman now starting to play well. I think they're a really good team and a really well-coached team by Frank Reich. And I don't think it's any uh, surprise to see that the rise of the Colts under Reich and the... That sounds very... That sounds very... <laughs> <hitty. God>. <laughs> <laughs> Reichy, that took a turn. Um, we call him uh, Reich versus, from now on, just to make exactly, sure. Frank Reich <laughs> versus the fall of the Eagles uh, since he's left. But yeah, I think the Colts are a really, really interesting team. I think the, the encouraging thing from their perspective was, you know, they were 28-14 down at halftime and you kind of fear that Philip Rivers doesn't want to get in these games where you have to put it all on him. But to come back in the, in the way they did in the second half shows, A, good adjustments at halftime from the coaching staff. Simon's mentioned, right, I think Matt Eberflus is a brilliant defensive coordinator as well. And they stepped up and made plays when they needed to. You know, the Rakusin's interception was fantastic. I think it was Okariki on the fourth and one play. They tried to play to Jamal Williams where he, he played really well. Julian Blackman then comes up with the the fumble at the end and really encouraging that they made plays at the right time. And I think when it comes to the AFC, they obviously don't want to be involved in shootouts with, with Kansas city and teams like that. But if that defense can just sort of keep them in games, then I think they can, I think it can be a threat in January. Definitely. The overriding feeling is that the AFC is the stronger conference this year and maybe for the last couple of years, which hasn't been the case for a long time. Are the Packers a team that even if they're, you know, ending up finding themselves in the three, the four seed, not being able to host many games at Lambeau, are they still a team that you expect to go deep or would the thought will go deep? They're now 0-2 against teams with winning records this season, which is troubling because they might be able to get through this season and win 12, 13 games, uh, 10, 11 games. But when it comes to January, you're going to be playing against teams that have obviously got winning records. So they need to start being... <laughs> they, they might draw an NFC East team in the Well, that's round. true. Yeah, very good point. <laughs> yeah, fair point. So they'll get past that round at least. They really struggle on defence. And I think now it's really coming home to roost the fact that over the last two years, they have summarily failed to supply any weapons around Aaron Rodgers. You know, Jay Sternberger is essentially the only player that, that is making any sort of um, impact from the last couple of drafts. You've got AJ Dillon, who's been injured, been on the COVID list, hasn't played particularly as a third string running back. Obviously, Jordan Love doesn't even suit up. There isn't a massive level of trust, I don't think, in anybody beyond Aaron Jones, Alan Lazard and um, Devontae Adams. And, you know, that came home to roost on Sunday with the, with the key fumble at a critical moment for a very inconsistent Marcus valdez scandling. Nice to see Devontae Adams giving Cooper Cup some love on uh, social media this week as well. I feel like an underrated receiver the last few years, giving another underrated receiver a bit of love, which was uh, a lovely, lovely thing to see. Uh, Let's talk about another NFC possible powerhouse in the New Orleans Saints, because fact is they're leading their division. They've now got a win over the Falcons. They're eight and two, first seed in the NFC territory. And they did it with a really, really strong defensive performance and Taysom Hill doing 
enough. And, you know, if that's the same for the next three games, they face the Falcons again and the Broncos, who look improved but still aren't a, a particular force, they might get Drew Brees back with 10, 11 wins and in a very strong position to, to take the number one seed. If nothing else, the Taysom Hill performance of the weekend just shut people up because it's so boring listening to people going, he's not a quarterback, he's not a this. When you look at it, he is the archetypal modern-day quarterback. You know, he can clearly take the pounding because he's been doing it for three or four years. He can move the pocket. Is he Dan Marino when it comes to throwing? No, he's not, but that's not the expectation. He also went 18 of 23 for 233 yards and then added 51, 50, yeah, 51 yards and two touchdowns on the ground for 109 passer rating. And they won the game. He did exactly what was asked of him. And also the outstanding goat move from uh, Sean Payton by retweeting Roddy White's tweet after the, uh, <laughs> after the game was one of the best things that's happened all season. I thought he played really well. And, I, you know, I said on this podcast last week, I thought Jameis Winston had to start because taking Taysom Hill out of the positions that he plays in would adversely affect the offense. And what it did when they put him at quarterback is it just added a, a completely different wrinkle because he was able to do a lot of the stuff that he does just from a position which he is in complete control of, which was the quarterback position. I'm still not 100% sold about the Saints. They're the sort of team that you could easily see in the Super Bowl. They're also the sort of team that you could see crash out in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah, it's weird because I, I agree with Simon in that, you know, you could see them going one and done or going all the way. And yet, despite that, I was looking this morning, they're top five in all three phases of, of DVOA for Football Outsiders, which is there's only four teams in history that have been at that point of this stage in the season. And that's the greatest show on turf Rams, the 2007 Patriots and Andy Reid's Eagles team that got to the Super Bowl. So they're clearly good in all three phases. Um, I thought there was a little bit of rust early on from Taysom Hill. You know, they had um, the first few drives didn't really go anywhere. And then they had that play right before halftime where he underthrew the deep ball by about 15 yards and kind of got bailed out by, I think it was Manny Sanders coming back and, and they got the, the touch time to go ahead at the half. But second half, they, they looked they looked better and, it seemed like they were, obviously they don't want to just keep running him and running him and running him, but it seemed like after halftime they were naturally using that as a threat because he is fantastic at doing that. So you've got to credit Sean Payton. They went 5-0 and with when Teddy Bridgewater came in last year, won again with a backup quarterback here. So I do have doubts about whether they can go all the way, but they're playing well in, in all three phases. And as you say, the, the defence, eight sacks here. Trey Hendrickson's now leading the league along with Miles Garrett with, 9.5 sacks and he's another one of that 2017 draft class which is like just absolutely smashed out of the park Alvin Kamara Marshawn Lattimore Ryan Ramchek uh, and yeah and then Trey Hendrickson it's just just incredible that draft class has set them up so well for success talking of drafting and a guy taken at the very top of the draft this year but I think what's needed to be said about Joe Burrow has been said a horrible injury you know one of those that as you see it happening you just knew immediately that's a, a season ender and a, and a really bad one. And, you know, what the question is, is is just how bad is that going to be with all the ligaments seemingly damaged within his knee? But it happened again because they've not built an offensive line there that's going to help him. Those incidents can happen, but they've clearly got weapons on the offense. They've got a really nice trio of receivers. When Joe Mixon's healthy, they've got a, a good back with a nice compliment in Gio Bernard. So going into this draft where it now looks like they're going to have a top three pick that they've got to focus on the offensive line. And maybe someone will give them an absolute haul to come up and get Justin Fields or something. Like maybe they decide to triple the amount of picks they've got and try and you know do it that way. But Simon, as our college guy, you know what this offensive line class might look like. There's some pretty top-tier talent right at the very top end. Yeah, they've got to draft Penny Sewell if they end up in the top two or three. The Oregon left tackle, who's an absolute man-mountain, a fantastic in-pass protection 
great in in uh, as a run blocker. He sat out the year. It's a good class of offensive linemen. Liam Eikenberg of, uh, of Notre Dame is a player I really like, but they've got to draft Penny Saw and they've got to do whatever they can. And if that means moving Jonah Williams to the right side, if it means moving him to guard, or if it means putting him on the bench, then so be it. I just think overall, Zach Taylor, I mean, his quote afterwards, you know, that's just the way it goes. No, a missed field goal is the way it goes. Uh, you know, an interception is the way it goes. Having your quarterback who's dropped back and thrown more times than any quarterback in the NFL behind one of the most porous lines in the league, that's not, that's the way it goes. That's just dreadful coaching. That's the interesting factor for me with, with Zach Taylor because do they know the Bengals hierarchy who we know are reluctant to fire head coaches when it seemingly they should do in the past? Do they now look at it and say, well, it, it's not a fair reflect. We can't really judge maybe. Zach Taylor down the, down the stretch. Whereas had you had Burrow, then perhaps you would have done that. And maybe then you bring Zach Taylor back next year. And if he's not the right guy, then that's another year of, of Joe Burrow's development you've wasted. So it's just bad news all around. And, and, particularly for Burrow, because he, he seems like a great guy as well. Like every time I see him do interviews, he seems really, really likeable. There's, yeah. there's barely any dead cap in Cincinnati for next year. AJ Green likely will move on and they've got a good trio of receivers there behind him when he is as and when he does move on. They spent a little bit on defense in free agency last year, but there are going to be options out there on that side of the ball as well. And you know what? If you go out and you pick up two free agent linemen, you get Penny Saul, and then you spend your next three picks on offensive linemen as well. I'd have no problem with it whatsoever because Joe Burrow has shown what he needed to show. You know, hire Joe Brady as your head coach. Surround him with people that you know he's worked with, that get him, that understand what he does. It's going to be a long road back for, for Joe Burrow. I just don't think Zach Taylor's the guy that's going to take the Bengals anywhere close to to developing his talent because he looks like he could be a really, really tremendous NFL quarterback. I'm going to make sure I get that stat earlier actually right because I didn't have it to hand. So Burrow's one of four quarterbacks with at least five 300-yard passing games in his first 10 career games. It's him, Andrew Luck, Kurt Warner, all on five, and then Pat Mahomes on eight. And you could argue that the other three were all in middling to bad teams, so having to throw more, just ridiculous. Talking of another team who have managed to potentially ruin a quarterback by just not putting the talent around him. How sensational was Deshaun Watson on Sunday and and how frustrating must it be, Simon, being a a Houston Texans fan and seeing just how good he is, considering just how poorly they've they've helped him? Yeah, the stats are amazing. I mean, there are so many things that, you know, he's the living embodiment that quarterback wins are not a stat that is of any relevance to anything that, that the NFL does. I think he's the highest rated quarterback since week five. He's a top three quarterback in the league and playing like it behind, you know, an average offensive line. Although, you know, the two tackles have been playing well, but both have been injured. Laramie Tunsil was out at the weekend. He's on pace to be the only quarterback since 1950 to have 10 plus losses and 100 plus passer rating, which is pretty astonishing. And you look at how bereft of talent that team is and of draft picks and of the way it's being run, the whole Jack Easterby thing, uh, the whole Amy Palchik thing. And you just wonder where are they going to be able to build the talent around him to, to maximize the brilliance that he has? You know, you hope that, you know, somebody like Eric Bainemi gets the job and, and they can mesh really quickly, but they really are wasting the best years of, of Deshaun Watson as the defense gets older, as the offense gets older. And, you know, the talk about keeping Romeo Cronella around, I mean, should be chucked in the lake and set fire to because that is not going to help, you know, Deshaun reach the, the levels that his talent clearly should take a team to. What I would say is there's obviously going to be a lot of head coaching vacancies up at the end of the year. And in terms of like attractive propositions, the Jets are going to have a lot of cap space, probably have the first overall pick. Potentially the Bengals, you've got Joe Burrow there. If you are a head coaching candidate you look at or a general manager, you look at the Texans and think, OK, we are set at the most important position for the future. 
and that is that is a massive thing that's going to be very appealing to people. You know, there, there are a lot of holes. They don't have draft picks in the next draft, high draft picks in the next draft, but you are set at that position with a guy who, as Simon says, is top five, top three at the minute. We're sticking on nearly a similar theme because it's a quarterback who had a sensational first season and this year has struggled because of what's around him potentially. Yeah, you lose a a Hall of Fame guard in Marshall Yonder, you lose a top three left tackle in Ronnie Stanley, you lose two of your three starting tight ends when you ran so many three tight end sets last year. Maybe we shouldn't have expected the Ravens' offence to be any good, but they weren't good again this weekend. I think they were improved, but still it was a lot of third and long shots to Mark Andrews, which they managed to, to pull off. And they've lost three of the last four now. They've got Pittsburgh on Thursday night football, and they've got basically their entire running back field out with COVID. So, yeah, it's not really an ideal situation in Baltimore right now. I don't think it's a quick fix either because, you know, there's not one thing you can point out and say, well, that's the problem. It's it's schematically there's a problem. Defence is doing a far better job this year loading up with defensive backs to kind of combat that speed they have, putting spies, sometimes two spies on, on Jackson in the box just to stop him from breaking out you know Mark Andrews was the only player who had more than 28 receiving yards that's just astonishing Marquise Bryan had zero catches he's been complaining about his usage he's just a complete non-factor we've obviously mentioned the offensive line now they've lost Yander Ronnie Stanley and then he changes center after the terrible performance the previous week and it just seems like it's one of those where they're going to have to get back to the drawing board in the offseason and look at this properly because I don't think there's a quick fix here it just seems like fundamentally the whole system is is broken Ryan Clark said that they were slow and soft on offense. And I can't attest to whether or not they're soft, but they're certainly slow. Um, we've talked about it before. They're not a team A built to, to come from behind. And, and essentially, I think you load up the box to stop them running and, and make Lamar Jackson beat you with his arm. And the talent that he has at receiver is is incredibly uh, minute. When, when Willie Sneed is your kind of number one guy and you're bringing... 83-year-old Des Bryant back. You know, Hollywood Brown can talk all he likes about not being a part of the offense, but there's a reason he's not part of the offense, which is he's not been very good at all. You know, he's verging on on bus territory and, and his first game in the NFL was probably his best game in the NFL. So they're really struggling and I, I'm not sure how you put it together. I think Greg Roman probably... I think they, it feels like they've reached the end. It's been like, remember the Dolphins pulled out the Wildcat a few years ago against the Patriots and that was all on Vogue and, and we, we drafted Pat White. And by the time Pat White had come in, teams had worked out how the Wildcat and it, it was no longer a thing. It feels like teams have worked out Lamar Jackson and Greg Roman's style of Lamar Jackson's offense. So it'll be interesting to see where they go next. But this is exactly what happened with, with Kaepernick and Roman. You know, he came in, absolutely lit it up. And then t- defenses adjusted and offensively they didn't adjust and I talked to Rob Ryan for the next issue of Gridiron he obviously worked with um, Greg Roman <laughs> 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 just trying to get a plug in mate don't worry he obviously thought about uh, working with Greg Roman in Buffalo and he said to me you know they're running the same plays in Baltimore <laughs> that they were running in San Francisco and in Buffalo it's just he, he has a better quarterback now but everybody knows the plays they've seen them umpteen times so can Greg Raymond change this I'm not so sure we, we talked about it coming into the season was this idea that there was the question all over the place could Lamar Jackson do it again in year two and I said it going into the year it's not about Lamar Jackson doing it in year two it's about the coaching making sure that offense still works because he's clearly physically able to do the job 
obviously quarterbacks can freelance and do something special on their own, but it does feel like it's got a little bit one note and one note at a time where they haven't got the talent for it to be one note. Big win for the Titans, considering they've got the Colts coming up again this Sunday off the back of the loss last week to, to move to seven and three. And, and they showed they can come from behind, which has been a rarity with this team. And, and actually, if they can get a result against the Colts this weekend, their run-in then goes Browns, Jags, Lions, Texans as four of their last five games. You suddenly feel quite good about their position getting into the playoffs if they can get a win this weekend. They're already seven and three. Let's move on to the ugly and talk about... It's been a lot of failing quarterbacks this week, but I'm sure there'll be more joy than for most people within this room here when Tom Brady is the failing quarterback we're talking about. (laughs) A little dance from Simon Clancy, a little grin from Liam Blackburn. It wasn't good from him. I know we got the standard Matthew Sherry excuse making in WhatsApp, but I I tried to temper it a little bit to talk about the play calling, but he missed some throws and the second interception was absolutely on him not seeing the guy coming across the formation. And I think there is an element to him where he's got frustrated and then he's trying to force things and it's just not working for them. You know, it was clear that Rams rookie safety Jordan Fuller was his number one target on Monday night. I mean, he seemed to look for him wherever he was on the field. But all jokes aside, 4.5 yards per attempt with Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Cameron Brake, Scotty Miller, Gronkowski, Antonio Brown is not good. Nine picks in 11 games. He looks old and there are some significant deep ball issues that I think are really coming home to roost. And, you know, I was talking about it at the weekend. I think Tampa have got an inordinate amount of talent. And on any given Sunday, I think, you know, they're a team that could make a run because they do have so much talent on both sides of the ball. But they're almost being let down now by the guy that everybody thought was going to be able to take them to the promised land. And at the moment, based on what happened at the weekend, based on the game against the Saints, it does feel like unless Brady is absolutely on fire, they're going to struggle to do that. And and he will be the one that's letting the side down. Those deep ball issues you mentioned there, last four games, zero for 19 on deep ball passes. He hasn't completed a deep ball pass his last 22 attempts. In their four losses this season, his passer rating on deep passes is (laughs) 9.3. And that is in Bruce Arians' system where obviously the deep ball is massive. I mean, he may as well have just kept Winston or got Joe Flacco or someone in if this was the, the system they wanted to run because yeah. it's just awful. You know, they, there was always a question when they came into season about was there going to be a mesh between how is Brady's, the way Brady plays going to work in Tampa Bay and the way Arians works. And they haven't found a, a balance for that at all. They need to do something, whether it's, and again, I, I don't know because we talk about sort of running backs out of the backfield were, were massive for Brady in New England. You know, I think it was one catch on five targets here from running backs. Leonard Fournette had three drops. So that's not going to get it going. And and also, uh, just uh, apart from the, the offense, the, the defense, you know, we saw how well the Dolphins played against Goff two, three weeks ago. They had zero sacks on Jared Goff. There was, you know, you'd think that Todd Bowles' Tampa Bay defense would be blitzing here, there and everywhere and getting hits and stuff. And it was just non-existent. It was a weird dichotomy in the game whereas the first half both teams got the ball moving we did see the kind of occasional punt but its second half was very sloppy a lot of mistakes from both sides and Jared Goff didn't cover himself in glory with the second half performance having played very well in the first half but uh, the Rams defense was the one that, that stood up and made the difference and consistently have done so and that defensive backfield is is something to get generally pretty excited about for the Bucks. They're now two games back in the South and they have the Chiefs on Sunday. So, um, yeah, their chances of winning the division are around about slim to none. Uh, Thursday is Thanksgiving, by the way, and uh, I have just been sent 
<laughs> this is absolutely ridiculous. If this is not a live turkey, then I don't care. <laughs> a little NFL pumpkin pie for nice. Thanksgiving. Thanks, guys. Uh, appreciate it. That is going to be eaten probably before Thanksgiving, not going to lie. Um, Zero chance that makes it to Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd be astonished if it does. Uh, the Lions are playing on Thursday night, and it's Thanksgiving. The slate always appears to do this, but partially it's because the Lions and Cowboys, I guess, are bad teams a lot of the time, so you almost can't help it. It's not a pretty slate of games, and the Lions are coming off a game where they were playing PJ Walker, and they managed to lose, not only lose by 20 points, but also not score at all. I love Matt Rule, and he deserves respect for that performance, but it's the coaching on the other side with Matt Patricia I want to talk about. Every time there's no Kenny Golladay, it just looks like that offense has absolutely no idea of what they're doing, and, and Swift was out here as well, but 185 total yards and against a defense that had given up in the previous four weeks, 415, 401, 397, 544. An absolute shambles, you know. And the, the thing with the Lions is they'll probably go out on Thursday and put in a really good performance and win and everyone will be like, oh, maybe they can put it together. But they, there's just no consistency. They can't string together back-to-back wins. I mean, we've said it all about Patricia before. You know, he's had he's had long enough now. He's brought in all his own coaches. He's hired, fired coordinators. He's had all his guys from New England that he wants in the building. And they're just not very good, ultimately. Matt, you're 13-28-1, buddy. It's time. For him and Bob Quinn to go. The biggest takeaway from that game really is that PJ Walker clearly belongs in the NFL and Matt Patricia almost certainly belongs in the XFL because the coaching job that he's doing is pretty atrocious. Also, it's a uh, yeah, a defunct league and Matt Patricia is defunct. And therefore, if it never comes back... It Hence be why he best. should be working in yeah, it. It would be for the best for everyone involved. Right, let's hear from uh, Super Bowl winning head coach Brian Billick. I want to talk to him about... This idea that we're talking about with uh, how much the Ravens' issues lie on coaching rather than talent. We'll get into a little bit of Thanksgiving as well, and then we'll have our likes, our dislikes, and our unsung heroes for this week. And Coach, uh, I'm probably a couple of days early, but I'll say an early Thanksgiving to you. Uh, to you as well. Uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate that. <laughs> There's a bit of an adage about how the season doesn't really start until the turkey's been cut. Do you, do you buy into that this is where the business end of the season starts? Well, it's it, and as you get into December... You used to call it the dash for the cash, which was, okay, getting to the playoffs. So, yeah, it not that it's any more important. It just becomes more clear. I always used to tell my players, the loss in September isn't any less important than the loss in December. It's just more clear when you lose in December what the consequences will be. Basically trying to say, you know, there's only 16 of these, okay? So you've you got to stay focused on all of them. But clearly now there's an enhanced sense of urgency because the consequences of particularly those teams, and we've got a large group of them, particularly in the AFC, that are touching that playoff area, not necessarily for the divisional crown, but, you know, I always say a team like say, the Baltimore Ravens, they're no longer in the AFC uh, North. They're in the AFC wildcard division uh, because now they are competing with whether it be Miami, whether it be Indianapolis, wh- whoever uh, in that group, that's who it's going to come down to in terms of that those last wild card plus one spots. I think we all knew that this season was going to have an element to it where you were going to have to almost accept that there was going to be some unfairness because of, of everything around COVID. But are you surprised that, that with the cases in Baltimore this week, considering the size of this game on Thursday, divisional game, that there hasn't been any kind of you know consideration to moving it or just can't you because it's Thanksgiving? Well, I think the, the, the league has set some parameters. They've talked about it at great length. 
what would it take for us to suspend or postpone a game because of a competitive disadvantage? Now, that's a kind of a, a, an uncertain line to cross because during a regular season, teams have a rash of injuries. And it always seems to come at a singular position. You get one offensive lineman hurt, you get three offensive linemen hurt. It always seems to cascade, or at least it feels that way. Injuries, and, and I don't know that you could put this in that category, are certainly a part of it, but you're right. And I don't know what those protocols are for the league to say, okay, this is no longer a competitive, even playing field, so we're going to suspend it. They're getting to the point where we really can't we can't make an adjustment. I know they've also looked at the end of the year that if there are some games that are canceled, they're looking at, well, how much of a difference will it make in the playoff seating? And if not at all, then it's no harm, no foul. If it does, they're going to have to make some type of accommodation. So they have lots of plans for that. You're obviously referencing the most poignant one is the Thanksgiving game with Baltimore and Pittsburgh, which would be a great rivalry typically. And yet Baltimore is really going through some issues in terms of the COVID. But I think it would have to be you know, fairly dramatic, much more dramatic for the league to step in. Because once you start down that, then you're going to have teams going, well, what about us? You know, hey, we're not, you know, we're the same numbers. They're hard decisions to make. It's obviously already difficult being a short week and having that game go to overtime at the weekend, the extra toil physically and mentally. Just as a bit of an overview outside of the COVID issues, what do you make of what's happening in Baltimore right now? Well, and you really have to come back to Lamar Jackson. I mean, defensively, they've had injuries. Without Clayus Campbell and Brandon Williams in the middle, people are running on them. And they're not used to that. And they're going to ha- and they have to make those adjustments to stop to the run with the numbers. And then people are hurting him in behind. That, that's an injury issue. Offensively with Lamar and more, no more sore with the Steelers. The St- he has not yet cracked the code for the Steelers. Bit on NFL Network about how clearly the drop zones, the zone blitzes, uh, the creative way they use Dupree and Watt on the same side, opposite sides. One comes, one drops. The other guy falls back into here. He's had five interceptions in the two real games he's played against the Steelers, which means he hasn't figured out that Steeler blitz and zone drop package. And there's some perfect examples of it is where he sees pressure here and he turns to throw and, oh, my gosh, there's another guy over here that I didn't account for. And it turned into a pick six in the first uh, first quarter, first series, the last time. And then uh, another interception when Dupree and, and Watt were here. He didn't see Williams dropping underneath. His feet were all screwed up. He was throwing off his back foot. So clearly he's he's having some issues progressing as the pocket quarterback, particularly against a team like Pittsburgh. And he's going to have to figure it out for Thursday night. How much should that fall on Lamar Jackson's shoulders? And how much should we look at the coaching this season and maybe the lack of progression in that offense as a coaching issue? That was a priority coming in. Uh, they fully committed to Lamar, you run when you run. That's fine. But we want to be more efficient from the pocket, particularly where he struggled outside the numbers uh, is where he had a lot of issues. The other thing that, that he's facing, and you saw it against Tennessee, you saw it against in the first half against Indianapolis, and you saw it against Pittsburgh. He's going to run, and they're, they're fine with that. But when he doesn't get the explosive runs against Pittsburgh, uh, the last time I think he had like 13 runs, but he had one big, one big run, nine yards, I think. Tennessee, I think he had nine, 10 runs, but only for 50 yards. So when they can limit him in that capacity and he's not getting the big plays down the field, yeah, that's the question with Lamar Jackson. Is he going to progress? 
is he going to get better in that capacity? Because teams are beginning to kind of figure out, well, if we can do this. Now, he can hurt you in, in some of those areas as well. But you combine it with the fact that people are running on them, and now they're not winning. You know, last year they were getting 37, 38 minutes time of possession. They were three and out. Their opponent was three and out, and they were up and down the field. And that's not happening this year. So that's part of the equation as well. Greg Roman came into the year with people talking about him being a head coaching candidate based on what he'd done in the first year with Lamar Jackson. And again, we've talked about injuries already, but you can say you're losing Marshall Yonder, losing Ronnie Stanley to injury. Those are huge things. But there is a question over whether or not the scheme has developed enough to mean that people can't just figure it out, can't just say, well, you're doing the same as last year. What have you done for me lately? Yeah, And and no, he's not going to get a mulligan and people going, well, yeah, he's a head coaching candidate because, well, they were hurt and we'll get, no, it doesn't work that way that, you know, you're either successful or you're not. And, and Greg, uh, Greg was on my staff initially and uh, could be a good uh, head coach, but yeah, I mean, you, you, you got to follow through and you got to strike while it's hot. When you have a year like you did last year, that's the opportunity to get it. You look at what's going on in Philadelphia, Doug Peterson, you know, a couple of years ago, genius risk taper, you know, now they're hurt, they're injured, they're just a bad football team, and he's a village idiot. He didn't become a bad coach, okay? It's just the things going on around. Now, yes, he's responsible for everything that's going to go on in the team, but they're just not a good football team in Philadelphia right now. And to try to blame Carson Wentz and Doug Peterson solely because of them is just, it's not right. I heard a really interesting thought on Doug Peterson in particular, and you see these Andy Reid coaches come out of the scheme and have a brilliant first year, And then so often it's almost like that doesn't carry over. Whereas guys like Bill Belichick, guys like Andy Reid, the one thing they're brilliant at more than anything else is adapting and changing as the league changes, being either ahead of it or at least on schedule with it. That must be one of the hardest bits of coaching is to not just be what's the best thing for me, but making sure I'm ahead of everyone else. So they're not sure when, whether you come out of a coaching tree, like you alluded to, or, you know, what any head coach, you certainly have to show a competence to get the job. The players have to buy in, but then you have to sustain it. We've seen guys that have had these flashes, and that's that's why the average coaching tenure is about three years. You know, you 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 got to sustain it, and that comes from truly. Everybody talks about changing the culture. That's always the buzz term. Okay, when I come into an organization, we got to change the culture. That doesn't happen overnight, and and when it, when you do change it. Is it the right culture? I always love it when coaches were, what I say, you know, when things aren't going well, well, we got to get back to fundamentals. Well, what if you're fundamentally wrong? <laughs> what, what do you say in here? So yeah, that culture changes a lot and it has to be sustained and it has to be the right one with the right fit with the right people. That's a lot. And so whether it's a Belichick or, or Andy Reid disciple, or whether it's any other coach coming into a head coaching position, that, that's the challenge for you. And you look at the AFC playoff picture overall, you know, you mentioned how they're now in the AFC wildcard division. Well, it looks like a pretty hot division. Whoever falls out from the Colts and the Titans in the Browns right now are a game up on the Ravens, the Raiders, the Dolphins have both gone on hot streaks recently. Do you think they turn it around and at least are a playoff team this year? I think all those teams are capable of being a playoff team, particularly when you're talking an eight field. And the Raiders, for instance, that, that was an impressive game against Kansas City. It, you know, there's no moral victories in this league, but but that was an impressive a loss where you saw Derek Carr for two games with Kansas City go throw for throw, completion for completion, touchdown for touchdown with Patrick Mahomes. I, I said it earlier that Las Vegas didn't lose. They just ran out of time because there's no question that they had a little bit more time. I think Derek Carr would have done the exact same thing based on the way the games have gone. 
that we saw Patrick Mahomes do. So I think that was a, a validating win for the Raiders. But they are also in that wild card division now, and they've got to fend off some teams. Uh, the question is, which of those teams are capable? Okay, you make the playoffs. And we're, we're seeing in the NFC, my God, we may see a 6-10 and 10 NFC East champion go to the playoffs. I mean, that's just un-American. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> On Thanksgiving week, how dare I know, just, that's just <laughs> not right. So, and it's okay, well, so what? So that's great. You won the division, you get to go to the playoffs. Because you hear all those teams are saying, hey, we're still in it. We're still in it. Well, yeah, you are. And you're still in it. And you get to go play in the first round and get your butt kicked. Uh, now, that's not the mindset they're going to have. But in that AFC, all of those teams are capable of making some runs, particularly deep into the playoff. They're capable of going in and winning a couple games in the playoffs. Certainly the Ravens have shown signs of that. Like I said, I think the Raiders. Indianapolis is an interesting team. They're kind of getting sneaky good, you know. Cleveland, you know, we'll see. We'll see if they can really take that next step. But they're all capable of it. But they're all kind of playing each other here. the next. So it tends to, to even itself out. And so it's going to be a very interesting week, 16 and 17 in the league. Last question from me then, coach, is on one of those teams in the chase, the Miami Dolphins. And, and interestingly, I've seen a lot of people applaud yeah. Brian Flores for making the decision to, to drop to her when they were struggling this week to bench him. I mean, I guess the question is, are quarterbacks a little too mollycoddled in this league? And would you like to see more head coaches, you know, be willing to say, you're not playing well, let's see what we can do with someone else? Sure, yes. You, you always like to say you like competition at every position except quarterback. Because if you have competition at the quarterback position, it probably means you don't have a good quarterback. This is a tough one for Brian Flores. Because typically, once you made the move to Tua, and we talked about it earlier, okay, great. Now, every snap he takes is going to make you better for 21. And if you're a Joe Burrow or a Herbert or one of those guys, it's let it fly. Okay, so, uh, okay, he makes a mistake. And we, what are we going to do, lose another game? Who cares? If there's going to be a, a positive benefit to that. Hopefully by the end of the season, you start getting that stride and you carry it in 2021. Brian Flores is in a tough position because they're, they're one of those teams, one of those six win teams that's kind of touching the playoffs and he's in year two now. So he's got to show, yeah, just what we said. You got to show you can sustain it. Players have got to believe in you. I understand. And Vic Fangio can really screw up a rookie quarterback's head. He, he's very creative what he does in Denver. So Vic was on my staff in Baltimore, and he's brilliant in what he does. So I understand why Flores made the move. The problem is, I, I think you set your organization back because Tua needs a snap. He's going to be your guys. And to protect him in that way, to kind of go after the win, I get it. I understand it. We're still fighting for this. But job one for Miami, long-term, long-term being next year and the year after, is developing Tua. And to that regard, he missed an opportunity here and then still lost the game. So, yeah, it was a missed opportunity. Um, and two is saying, all right, yeah, I get it. I'm good. I'm going forward. It's kind of hard, though, as a coach. You go to your team and go, well, I did what I thought was for the best chance to win. But now this week, but I think going with two is the best chance for us to win. That at some point, the player's going, eh, you know what? You, you got to be a little more consistent than that. Coach, always a pleasure. Coach Brian Bellick joining us with XTech Pads. Wonderful stuff, as always. Speak again soon. Very good, Well. Brian Billick joining us with X-Tech Pads. We don't generally do game previews on this show, but there is a full slate of three games on Thursday night. So with one of them at least looking like it's incredibly playoff relevant, weirdly though, that's Cowboys Washington rather than Steelers Ravens right now. The Cowboys turning in a, a more than decent performance this past weekend. Washington, Alex Smith getting things going. Suddenly the NFC East looks competitive. It's the worst, decision, the worst division in football, but it could be the most exciting in the, uh, in the run into the end. 
in terms of mediocrity, but into also in terms of excitement, because you could get like a five team, five win team, hosting a play- <laughs> hosting a playoff game, which would be magic as long as it's not the Eagles, because they are truly atrocious. The only team I can't see winning that division is the team that's top of the division at the minute yeah. in Philadelphia. Because <laughs> the Giants have turned in some decent performances as well. They just turned the ball over way too much. But on defense, they've looked half decent. And yeah, it might end up being the game of the night. Uh, right. Let's talk about our likes, dislikes, etc. from this week. What's one thing that you boys will start with Simon like this week that we've not touched on yet? I like the Dolphins benching tour. I thought it was the right decision to make. And I also don't think that quarterback should ever be too big, too important not to bench. It's still his team. He wasn't playing very well. Uh, he felt pressure in the pocket way too more, way too much more than he should have done. And it was the right decision to bring Ryan Fitzpatrick in. And in terms of coaching, I just thought it was an excellent move from Brian Flores. I like to see those sorts of things. It won't affect his confidence. It was just for the good of the team. And ultimately, that's what the game should be about. I'm going to go for an ex-Dolphin, actually, and someone who I know Simon likes a lot. Uh, Minka Fitzpatrick had uh, two interceptions against the Jaguars, and I got four on the season, which is the joint most of all safeties with Justin Simmons, who should also get a bit of credit for the way he played on Sunday with that pick in the end zone. But he's, he's turned up massive in the last few weeks. Fitzpatrick, he had two huge plays uh, at the end of the game against Baltimore, forcing the fumble against Lamar Jackson. Then it was he had the pass knocked down in the end zone. He did that again against Dallas, and it's just looking like a really good trade that, you know, for one first-round pick, when you look at Jamal Adams costing the Seahawks two and other star defensive players costing teams two first-round picks, I just think that looks like a really good pickup from Pittsburgh. The one piece of coaching that Brian Flores probably did get wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty ridiculous the Mink Fitzpatrick thing as well because I remember about week four or week five Steelers fans being like you know this guy cost us a lot of money and he's not really bringing us a lot of returns this season and then he's just see it feels like he's just turned it on the last three four weeks and suddenly been making plays left right and center what's uh, is there something that you guys liked a little bit less that we've not touched on yet Liam yeah, I mean, this is low-hanging fruit, but Carson Wentz. Um, <laughs> two, two picks, five sacks and a fumble. And we just tweeted this on Gridiron, actually. I saw it on the ringer, but he leads the league in interceptions, sacks taken and fumbles. The last player to do that was Blake Bortles. I mean, oh, God. The, right, so the thing is, though, I'm now starting to think they're doing the right thing, not putting Jalen Hurts in, because that line is so awful. And the lack of weapons is so apparent that actually, if you know that Carson is not the one maybe because you're in the division you need to make the change but there's part of me that's like you it's almost like a running back that you're going to give 400 carries to because you know that his contract's up just run him into the ground and then rebuild from the ground up rather than throwing in a rookie into the worst situation humanly possible it's got that bad in philadelphia right now I want to throw in quarterbacks walking off without shaking hands. I think it's incredibly rude. Tom Brady's done it twice this season. Kyler Murray did it. I mean, I just think it's absolutely pointless. And it just shows a level of sort of, yeah, I know you're pissed off when the game's over, but it's a game. Go and shake hands. Be a man about it. My, I kind of, my like this week was going to be just pettiness amongst coaches. Like Andy Reid getting that upset that the Raiders did a lap of their stadium after they got the win at Arrowhead earlier in the season. It's COVID. There are no fans in the stadium. They got a little boost from it. Let them be. Why can't they enjoy it? And then Mike Vrabel taking his team out onto the Ravens logo where they got that massive playoff win last year, doing a little dance before the game. John Harbour getting all antsy about it. I, I'm here for it. I think it's great. Like, I have no issue with it whatsoever. I wish they did more of this nonsense because it gives us something to laugh about when uh, these guys are normally ever so serious. And John Harbaugh did not cover himself in glory as a man 58 years old with a Super Bowl ring who's been coaching in the NFL for something like 24 years. 
ridiculous behavior. Unsung heroes, boys. Mine's John Harbour. Uh, <laughs> Mine's PJ Walker. I mean, cut and re-signed 11 times by the Colts between 2017 and 2019. Comes in first start after going 5-0 and uh, in the XFL. Beats the, the Lions. I know it's only the Lions, but even so, plays really efficiently. Uh, hats off to PJ Walker because it can't have been easy because, you know, Teddy Bridgewater warmed up and it was a late decision as to whether or not he'd get the start. So kudos to him because that's, um, that's not an easy thing to do to win a game in the NFL. It's a great example of like having another league as well. Um, and the sort of, cause he, he wouldn't have had another chance had he not played in the XFL last year and played that well. And, you know, we've seen it in the past with NFL Europe and other leagues, people like Kurt Warner kind of getting chances based off the play they've played elsewhere. And yeah, I'm just really pleased for, for PJ Walker because, and again, another string to Joe Brady's bow that he can bring another quarterback in and still be missing Christian McCaffrey and light it up, albeit it was against the Lions. I legitimately hope we do end up with a viable second league. And unfortunately, it looked like Vince McMahon was the right person to come and plough some of his personal fortune into it to make it work. And then COVID hit and he ended up taking a massive loss on it, which is something he famously isn't. A guy that he likes to do that particularly, I know none of us do, but he's, I just can't imagine him going and reinvesting in that off the back of what he's lost over the last two years because of it, which is a shame, but it's lovely when you do get these stories. Did you have one... Liam Blackburn? Yeah, just a quick one. Not necessarily for sort of what he's done this week, but throughout the whole season. Um, Philip Lindsay, he's averaging 4.5 yards a carry, which is a full yard better than Melvin Gordon. And yet the Broncos still seem to want to feed the ball to Melvin Gordon and and other running backs. We've had this in previous years where they kind of brought people in and tried to um, limit Philip Lindsay's impact on the offense. But every time he gets the ball, he just produces. And I know Gordon got the two touchdowns here because he was given the red zone carries, but then he fumbled, nearly fumbled the game away at the end by fumbling at the one. And Philip Lindsay's never fumbled the ball in his entire NFL career. So well, I, my message to Denver is just give him the ball more and, and use him properly. I, I, I think in general as well, it's, it's kind of wider conversation about it. Like we talk a lot about running backs and the value that they have, but you look at, say, for example, what James Robinson's doing right now in Jacksonville and you compare it to, say, what Jonathan Taylor's doing in Indianapolis and you go... Well, what's the point in spending a high pick on a running back? But another prime example where you've got there Melvin Gordon, the splashy name with the decent sized contract, and it's Philip Lindsay turning up and producing week in, week out. Uh, gents, all great stuff. Uh, if you want to get more involved, social media, the guy's been doing a wonderful job there at UK Gridiron, at Gridiron on Twitter, and follow our YouTube channel as well. Some cool content coming up there soon. Uh, and yeah, uh, give us a rating and a review on Spotify, iTunes, all those good places. It's not called that anymore, is it? Apple Podcasts, sounding a bit old. Uh, it does genuinely help people find our show. Liam put his hand up in a very polite way before I sign off, Liam. I did. Sorry, I don't want to stop you playing that. But we should point out there's a, a competition on Gridiron now. If you follow Gridiron and retweet the tweet that's pinned to our profile, uh, you can win an NFL jersey. So Who's this that. handsome dude, by the way, the, <laughs> in the magazine? That's just a personal it. version for you, mate. Not everyone got that. <laughs> ah, You've got a haircut in this one as well, which is nice to see. There is also... Pre-lockdown. The magazine with Russell Wilson, who's going to score 60 points on uh, Monday night, is out and available now. And the next one is just going off today and is got lots of exciting stuff in it. So subscribe to Gridiron as well, because it's really bloody good. Thank you very much for listening and watching. This has been The Gridiron Show. <laughs>